What's up, listeners? This is Radio Blackout with DJ Blackout here on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Uh, it's time for me to go. Uh, up next is Living Writers with T. Hetzel. Uh, we're replaying an old show uh, from with the artist Keith Taylor, uh, author, artist. Authoring's art, right? Anyway. Um, thanks for listening. I uh, wanted to let you know that um, the last track we heard was from uh, up-and-coming producer Korg Borgler. Was uh, entered the Black Lodge. I believe it's uh, it's under under his alias Northlake. I don't know if this one's being released or not, but uh, definitely keep your ears out for more stuff from him. All right, here's Living Writers. Bye, Keith Taylor. Keith, welcome. Thanks, Dee. It's good to be here. Oh, it's great to see you sitting across you. the table. Um, it's April 8th, 2009. <laughs> We're joined here by Alex Bellhodge in the engineering seat uh, just beyond. And and Keith, it's just great to see you. I, I um, Your book, If the World Becomes So Bright, was just released. It was. Um, it was. Uh, just recently, but I missed it because I wasn't here, sadly. So I'm so glad that you were able to come now so we can talk about the book and also tell people there you have a reading coming up in, in Petrosky, right? Or uh, Let's see. I got a reading on Friday in Petrosky and then on the Saturday the 18th um, at the River Gallery in Chelsea, part of this Midwestern walk thing they're doing, a whole afternoon and evening of readings, the star being uh, the old San Francisco poet Michael McClure. Wow, that's yeah, nice, is great, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. yeah. Do yeah. Do you know him, Keith? Or I don't. Know, I don't know him, and I'm not going to hear him because then I'm coming back into town to read a couple poems with the Ann Arbor Symphony that evening in Michigan Theater, um, which which poems which will accompany a new piece that they commissioned uh, by Evan Chambers, who's the chair of the composition program here at the University of Michigan, um, <laughs> and he did a piece called Watershed, which is about the Huron River, and and I wrote a couple poems to go with that. So and, and new work then, new Keith. Work. Yes. So yes. not work that. Was in the the Huron River nope. voices from the watershed. No, nope. things I've written book. since then. Wonderful. Yep. So, so you're always this is you're you've been doing so much in this last year. So we're going to have to. Well, I'm going to have to work hard to make sure we can kind of cover all these these different things because you're no stranger to working with composers, um, right? I know I like to work with composers, composers, and I've had a particularly good relationship with Evan Chambers. He and I have known each other. For more than 20 years now. I mean, if you look at Evan, you wouldn't believe that because he looks like such a young man. But, uh, but we were back in the back in the 80s. Uh, we were actually book clerks together at Borders. At Borders, uh, was the that... first Borders. Yeah, when there was only one. And and that was was that your first um, bookseller gig here in Ann Arbor? I, and actually, then you moved to Shaman Drum. Right. Well, that's pretty close. Actually, when I first came to Ann Arbor, I had a I had a job. I was the manager of the textbook receiving in Ulrich's basement. It's a terrible job. <laughs> Terrible job. I got a couple cents. Keeps your com- complexion you know, right. away from I, the light. That's right. It was. I was I was a troglodyte. Um, but I was actually in pretty good shape because I had to throw those big boxes of chem books around. But that was ooh, that was a long time ago now, 30 years ago. Uh, and I didn't keep that job very long. And then started working for Borders and worked for them. And I uh, got a little bit uncomfortable there as they got bigger in corporate and then went to Shaman Drum and was there for 10 years. And that's now almost been 10 years since I've been there since uh, when I came over to the English department full-time. 
Right, right. Well, th- yeah. Let's let's even um, backtrack a little bit. Sure. Well, you were you were born in British Columbia, I was, right? Uh, very good, very good. <laughs> See, yes, I'm, that's why we had that's why we had Neil Young on at the beginning. It's people from the Canadian prairies. I was born in British Columbia, but then I grew up in Alberta. Um, oh, just just this side of the Rocky Mountains, and uh, then moved south, and then moved to, to the states. Moved to Indiana when I was, uh, you know, around high school age. Yeah, and and your father, he was a preacher. Was my he my father was a preacher man. Yeah, and, and um, so is that why you moved? Was it something about my father's small little denomination? My father was also a sort of um, an educator in this religious group, um, which was a started out as a splinter group from the Mennonites, uh, and there were there were small groups of them in different places and their one liberal arts college at the time was in was in Mishawaki, Indiana. So we came down and my father taught at that liberal arts college for a few years. So so Mennonites, that's that's pretty strict, isn't it? We were pretty strict, yeah, yeah. Um it was uh, when we when I grew up there wasn't much we could in one poem I called it the endless list of forbidden joys that governed our waking. And we could we didn't have a TV, we couldn't go to movies, we couldn't dance, the women couldn't wear makeup. Um you know, I mean, all this, and, you know, if you said darn, that was just like saying damn. And if you said damn, it, that was God damn, and you were going to go to hell. Oh, man. So and, yeah. and you also have a poem about when you were you were watching for the new year to come, sort of at, at, yes, yeah. a, a, a church. Uh, a church. We would go to church on New Year's Eve. Other people would go, go have a party. We would go to church and pray. And then we'd look at our watches until it was midnight, and then it, we'd pray some more. So it was called the watch night service. And you thought, well, what's happened afterwards, right? Uh, right. Before and after, where's the big change? What's uh, happened here yeah, with this new year? Uh, not much. It's, we were still here. There was always that possibility, too. There was always that possibility that we may not be here because the end of the world would come and we'd all be called to glory. Really? At that, that specific moment? Oh, or was you know, it yeah. at, at any, sort of any, any time for at, the rapture? At, at, any, any time. But, you know, there's something that was always a little bit auspicious about the new year, wasn't there? You know? There is. <laughs> it's a magical time, Keith. That's right. That's right. Um, so, yeah, there was all that. And then I came to Indiana, and, and uh, it was a miserable time, um, late 60s. So I, was, I talked funny. I uh, was out of place. I'd left most of my friends behind. I, uh, uh, it was the late 60s. Um, <laughs> and, that bears uh, repeating, right? Well, <laughs> uh, was it so bad because you were you were also going to test what your parents had absolutely. set up as your oh, limits sure. and Abs- your ab- forbidden was, joys? Absolutely, I was going to test the limits and and the time and, and of course then times we were all testing societal limits. So uh, you know it was it was uh, one rebellion after another. You just woke up in the morning and you said, "Okay, what rule am I going to break today?" <laughs> we found one. <laughs> And so, and then did the traveling begin? Well, I mean, in a sense, you'd been moving for those, those been, yeah, formative right. years anyway. Right. Been um, moving. And then I started, uh, you know, um, I ran away from home when I was a junior in high school and came back. But I mean, so basically that loosened things up. My parents at that point realized, let's not, you know, we'll just let them go. So I started traveling around a bunch then. I went to, and that was in the States. That would have been in Indiana. In then, the States or, and in Canada. And then, okay. and then uh, once I actually succeeded in finishing high school or at least they gave me a degree and let me go i uh, can't say i went a whole lot the last year um then i then <laughs> kids I, don't don't do remember that was right, the late that's right. 60s don't do kids. this at home now they have computerized <laughs> roll call and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you t thank you you're protecting me and now i'm a university professor right. uh but um then i then i i took took off and went to europe for a few years and, um sort of did a bunch of Menial jobs to keep myself alive, wash dishes in restaurants, swept floors, built houses, things like that. So so that was the dishwashing was in southern France. It was And indeed. then where was the house building? Where did that well, take I worked, you? Well, um, I worked, uh, I built houses for people who were building their own, usually summer places. I did, did one in Ireland and I did one in France. 
So, yeah. So, so you've so so you've been to Ireland multiple times as well. Like you've I returned. W- oh there. yeah, yeah. Um, should we say that T just got back from Ireland? Uh, no, we're not going to talk about T. Uh, yeah, I went to Ireland first of all in the early seventies. I was there for about six months, and uh, in nineteen, I was there in nineteen seventy-one, and then I was there again in nineteen seventy-two when I was nineteen and twenty. Um, that's, that's interesting to think because your your dear friend is Tom Lynch, and it's, you almost might have intersected paths there. Mm-hmm. But it was to be years later yep. in Ann Arbor um, right. that you the actually Lynch met, met. We after are... after your stint in Greece and other right. other places. Right. I think we 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 realized at one point that that Tom Tom first went back to his ancestral place in Ireland in 1970, I think, and I was there in 71. But he was back in 71. I was just a little bit further north. I was in County Donegal most of the time. Came down as far as Gaul. And Tom is just south of Galway, so we we were close, but not quite connecting. And so that was your house building time. Then. That was, yeah, yeah. So, so there's something to be said for, um, like, if you're you're making something, you're building something, and using your hands, like. But, like making a poem even right mm-hmm. like that's not a big stretch is it <laughs> <laughs> well i mean there's 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 uh, the idea of craftsmanship um which i mean i can't say i was ever a craftsman as a builder or um, even as a house painter but but that sense of actually doing things and trying to do things well that you make is uh, is certainly the same um Hopefully, I'm I'm more of a craftsman with words than I ever was as a, with wood or or house paint, but um, but yeah, it's the same sort of thing. I I there was, you know, back in the old days when you looked at, at authors' biographies, they particularly for men, you know, they always had this sort of whole list of macho things that they did, um, and I kind of always kind of liked that. You know, I was I was a house painter. The bull I was fighting. A, yeah, exactly. I was I was a house painter. I was. Uh, um, well, you know, a camp boy for hunting outfitters in the Yukon. I was a truck driver. I did all this. And now, of course, we've sanitized that a lot. Now it's uh, now I went to college here and I went to college there and I won this award. These are my list of awards. <laughs> and these are my list of accolades. And, and um, you know, which is not, of course, you don't have any of the sort of macho pretensions. But on the other hand, it does feel often, it feels like a diminishment. And uh, often we have, we do, we do seem to have uh, a bunch of writers who have very similar experiences and don't seem to value in any obvious way other experiences. And which is, is a problem. And is there anyone that you can think of that is sort of working outside of that right now or off the top of it? Well, I mean, just the one in my because we just just because he came through Ann Arbor recently, a, a Canadian poet. I mean, a, a older than me, Patrick Lane. Uh, while you were gone, but oh, no, he was. I he was, was here. I was oh, here. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. A fascinating guy, and and not doesn't even have a college education. He's been mm-hmm. he's been basically working with his hands since he was fifteen years old, and and, uh, ba- and also recognized as a man of letters in Canada. Absolutely, like very, a major very major figure. There, and now yeah. now of course and, is, and cared know, yeah. cared for yeah. by the country. Yeah. It seems yeah. like clearly clearly he's won a couple of governor general awards, and yeah, he's a major major writer. And 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 you you yourself have won an NEA. Um, I got a national nominee for the arts grant a long time ago. Yeah. Um, How? Yeah. What difference did that make in your writing, Keith? In your writing life? Because you were probably you, you're you're back maybe from some of the travels from mm-hmm, Greece. Mm-hmm. I was living in Ann Arbor then, um, and it was 1991. Um, I it was it was a kind of legitimacy. I mean, I'd published a couple of small chapbooks of poems with little regional presses, one in Ann Arbor, one over in Detroit. Um, I'd published some poems around in little magazines, some good little magazines, but I was definitely marginal. I mean, I wasn't, you know, when I would go, when I was first lived in Ann Arbor and I'd go to the readings at the university and I'd sit in the back row and I wouldn't, didn't know anybody and I'd feel very out of place. And in the writing community that already the, existed know, exa- here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
And, and you know, that sort of broke down over the years. And then by 91, when I got that, and, and uh, it was interesting. People, you know, when academics get National Endowment for the Arts grants, they use it to not to teach. Well, what the, the NEA grant allowed me to do was actually to teach, because then I left my day job for a few months uh, and started teaching. And, and uh, Nick Delbanco asked me to take over a, an introduction to creative writing class. So, so that's when I first started teaching it at the University of Michigan in 1991, and I've taught pretty consistently since then. Um, and now you're the director of the undergraduate creative writing program. Director, we call myself, we call me director from time to time, although officially I think I'm coordinator. Um, director, they'd probably have to pay me more to be director. But, well, let's um, push for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, um, so yeah, I take care of the undergraduate program and, and, and make sure people are doing the right thing. And, and it sounds like you're doing really good work there with the, the, fun. the latest... Yeah. Um, the latest literary magazine. Like people are always giving you shout outs, Keith. You're you're That's much sweet. Yeah. loved yeah. Right here. It took a while. But thirty years <laughs> thirty years in Ann Arbor and, and now and now I'm no longer the guy in the back row. It's true. <laughs> Hell yeah. We're gonna take a short break and we'll okay. be back with Keith Taylor. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Uh, we'll be back to talk more. If you're traveling in the north country fire Where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there For she once was a true love of mine If you go when snowflakes storm When the rivers freeze and summer ends Please see she has a coat so warm To keep her from the howling wind Please see if a hair hangs long It rolls and flows all down her breast Please see for me if a hair's hanging long For that's the way I remember her best I'm wondering if she remembers me at all Many times I've often prayed In the darkness of my night In the brightness of my day Hi, welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Keith Taylor here. Um, so Keith has many books out, um, but his latest, um, just this year, 
uh, from Wayne State University Press, um, If the World Becomes So Bright. Um, and this is made in Michigan Writers Series, Keith. It is. Uh, Wayne State has started this series, um, I think this is the second year's chance, it might be the third, uh, where they're doing four books a year. Um, people who've lived here, and I think they, you know, they sort of set up this arbitrary number, 10 years or something. They've lived here at least 10 years, although most of the people in it have lived here all their life. Um, I've now lived here longer than many people are, are, you know, many people who live in the state have been born. So I get to, I get to count even though, uh, even though I wasn't old man Taylor, old old man Taylor. Um, and they're doing a great job and they have these wonderful people there. I mean, it's, it's, the book is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you don't buy one, go buy your bookstore and look at it. It's just beautiful. But buy one too. I mean, this is a good book to have on your shelf. This This is is a, this is a photograph of, of Isle Royale at night with the northern lights coming up uh, from the from the north end of Isle Royal which um, figures into the, your poems the I final do. I en- the I ended up uh, section I, en- I ended up I I had I had an appointment at, at Isle Royal as artist in residence in 1991 the guy who took the photograph had had the appointment as his name was Dan Urbanski he passed away last year he was artist in residence in 1992 I never met him but uh, Oh, what a strange! Yeah, and and it was nice that they picked this. So they did the so Wayne State did this, and um, they asked to see a manuscript, and I gave them a manuscript, and then they were just great to work with. I worked with a, a, a an editor um, named Annie Martin, who had this wonderful sort of attitude. She said, oh, Keith, we love your poems. We want to do your book. This is just great. But why don't you just try this? So I tried that, and then she said it what again. Were they, what were they suggesting? Like, what oh, would be some play of with, the back play and with forth? The order, play with the order. Um, since it's university press, it had peer reviewers. Some of them made suggestions about lines, um, stanzas, poems. Um, and she would just say in a very sweet way, that, oh, why don't you try this? Or, or, you know, and then she really did a lot of work on the order. We went back and forth about that five or six times, which, and I was very willing to do it partly because she always said she loved my poems. That's how she always began it. Um, and when I got the galleys for the book, and compared it to the manuscript that I'd sent them a year or nine months earlier, was amazed. The book was so different and so much better. I mean, she had just she had taken this manuscript and really had reshaped it, uh, you know, with my permission along the way. But she'd made it herself. My line on that is that uh, Annie Martin was Michelangelo and, and I was the block of marble. Um, it's a little bit pretentious because that means my book is the masterpiece. But, That's right. Uh, <laughs> and that might it's be a David, little much. It's David. Again. It's right there. It's exactly, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so that was, and then the, then the marketing and publicity people have just been great. I mean, it's it's been a wonderful experience to work with them. And and so that is interesting because you don't often hear, or at least I haven't until now, about that much input from an editor. Um, with a poet, you you yeah. you sometimes hear about it in the fiction world, right. although less now, like the the yeah. famous editors of, you know, bygone days. Yeah. But this sounds so. It was actually something that was you believe was like a good was beneficial and and made the work Abs- more more itself. Really. Absolutely, and I think that you know, at the, at the risk of sounding like the old man again, that I think is an attitude I've grown into. Um, poets are very because we do spend a lot of time worrying over you know single words and and you know the way and words fall and a space fall. and a space you know or a comma uh, what's that old line I, you know what did you, how did you spend the morning oh I spent the morning putting in a comma and then I spent the afternoon taking it out um, and and so poets worry about that but I think I've gotten past the point now uh, a lot of these poems that had lives over different years in magazines or in little chapbooks or little pamphlets so they were reshaping and reforming um, and that all felt quite plastic um 
so I mean, I was willing to work with it that way, and uh, and they were willing to give it that attention, which was great. And and Keith, a lot of the poems in here, it's it it they they connect back to this place, to our mm-hmm. place, to the. Um, you're no stranger to um, writing about the the natural world. Um, you know, some years ago, uh, you you uh, put out a collection, the Huron River Voices from the Watershed, with stories and, and essays and different and photographs mm-hmm. um, collected. That um, uh, um, and I want to thank you for that book because I was actually feeling quite, you know, oh, I miss West Clare. <laughs> oh, the beauty of the cliffs oh, yeah, and the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. And taking a look at this book, the Huron River. Um, it it's started to bring me back to what is the beauty of this place and and you you've been a writer of place even if it's been it seems like using your travels as the framework for mm-hmm. your poems whether it was in Greece or the different um is that true what Yeah that? no I, I clearly I think um and, and and partly because I'm interested in environmental issues um that's sort of my main political involvement um but also, I mean, I think maybe it just comes from my background. I mean, before my father became a preacher, he was a farmer. And I come from, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm probably the first generation of my family since we climbed down from the trees who has not worked the land um, at a, for a significant part of his adult life. Um, and, and, you know, farmers are, are connected to, to what goes on in a particular place, in a particular time, what that place can do, the things that grow there, the animals that live there. So do you think this is part of your vocation about being um, such a close observer or watching nature and, and, and birds in particular or being taking your canoe out and, and seeing moose mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like what? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. I mean, of course, we never really know what what are the roots of our particular obsessions. But I'd like I'd like to think that what I do and what I value um, and what I try to write about is is a reflection of something more than than simply my set of interests. I'd like to think that it carries over in some sort of almost genetic connection to my past and to my forebears. Is it possible for you to see some sort of a a change that's happened in your writing from spending a good 30 years here in this place. You've, you've used it as subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what else has, what has place done yeah, to the work? Uh, well, itself? it's, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, there was something in my character that was comfortable with attitudes in the Midwest. So when I arrived here, I mean, I come from a place that is, and what does that, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, a, um, Probably a quietness. There's probably um, a little less aggressive careerism. Um, there's probably a willingness, a more of a more of a willingness to um, find the small and unostentatious things, because of course our landscape is not ostentatious. Um, I come from mountains. Um, you come from oceans, you know. I mean, these are. It's easy to love mountains and oceans. I mean, you, you have to have a heart of stone not to. Um, to learn to love the margins of a cornfield, um, some can sometimes take a little more work, or uh, a muddy river rising from oozing out from springs. I mean, our springs don't even shoot up like fountains. Our our spring, our water oozes out from from the muck and and starts to flow. Um, to learn to to see that stuff and to value it and to love it and to celebrate it in literature, um, yeah, it, it's it's a different thing and it changes the mindset um, and certainly has affected me. It's, I mean, it is what I am now. 
And and do you find it it's it goes beyond the words themselves? Like, are there interior rhythms that are are some somehow in, impacted by? Yeah, there, I mean, poets talk a lot about, um, and it, there was there have been times it's been um, a certain style has been dominant in American poetry that's often referred to, uh, and sometimes dismissively, as plain style, um, which is a kind of unornamented. Um, direct speech sort of poetry. And that is certainly the poetry that has moved me the most. And that's certainly the poetry that, that in many ways I've tried to write, um, that doesn't, that does not have much surface extravagance that does not have, um, that, that, that tries to move pretty directly to the reader. Uh, it's been a, it's been a kind of poetry that's been out of fashion for a while, although it seems to be coming back into getting a little more attention in the last few years. Um, but uh, and that and that is a decidedly midwestern style. And so that's and and you're talking about like the plain spoken, like the language yeah, of the poem, the or, language of the poem, not not simple, like not not necessarily um, on the surface very lyrical, or how? Well, it not it depends on which. How do you define lyrical? Mm. I think you know. I mean, I would say it is lyrical, but it doesn't have a lot of simile. For instance, um, very suspicious of too much alliteration. You can alliterate, but you've got to do it. You know subtly and quickly if you alliterate four times on a particular sound that seems a little too gaudy exactly you know that's 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 beating the drum a little too loudly um so there's this sort of almost a self-deprecating approach to the language itself i mean there are great examples of of poets like that um but it's not just midwestern but although that is a that is a uh, approach to the poem that's flourished in the Midwest. But, I mean, I just, I'm working on a book review right now of the great Greek poet uh, Constantine Kavafi. And and uh, there's a new translation of him, which is really very well done. But, I mean, Kavafi and the 154 poems of his canon, there's not one simile. So, you know, in some ways, this is a poet uh, who doesn't have a lot of that surface ornamentation. There's a little more sound in the Greek than you get in some of the English translations, but but still, it's a it's 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 not it's not a gaudy poetry. It's a very direct uh, poetry, and he was a Greek from Alexandria, Egypt. So you know, it's not a it's not a, a local thing. Yes, yeah, and and do you try to keep some of um, working with translation or or writing this 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 review or critique of it? Do you try to keep that as something that you always have something like that going on in your your writing life, Keith? Since since battered guitars, uh, yeah, Carrie yeah. Talkis. Uh, I did I did that book of Greek translations a few years ago, and I worked on that with a friend for for ten years, and that was rooted in um, you know an attraction to modern Greek literature. Uh, that I've had for a long time. Um, although I've just, I just, I, I didn't learn modern Greek until I was comfortably into middle age. Um, but uh, and that's when you took up the language. Then. Uh, yeah, I think I was forty-five when I started to learn the language. So. And you had already spent some time over there too. I'd, I'd so. been in Greece. I'd been in Greece once and loved it. Um, but I'd spent a lot of time reading modern Greek literature. So. Um, in translation, there used to be a lot more of it available in the 60s and 70s than there is right now. Right now, we're at a point where there's not a lot. But I had a good friend whose Greek is much, much better than mine, um, and he introduced me to this guy, and, and there wasn't a book of this guy, and he's an important figure in Greece. He's very gloomy. He was a suicide, killed himself when he was 32, did Kostas Skeriotakis. Um, and we we set out to translate everything he published in his lifetime. Um, you know, he died young, so yes, yes. <laughs> the book's not that big, but... Uh, um, but it was fun to do. But he produced. That's he did. A, yeah, he worked hard. Is... He worked hard in his own in his own way. And, and so that's and that was this was this book was published by the University of Birmingham. It was uh, in England. Yeah, this came out in England. Yeah, yeah. 
That's oh, lovely. Yeah. Well, you know what? Wait, let's um, when we come back, we're going to take a short break, okay. and then let's hear a couple of your poems Certainly. from the latest book, Certainly. if you don't mind. Not Keith all. Taylor is here today. His latest collection of poems, "If the World Becomes So Bright." I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. We'll be right back. It's four in the morning, the end of December I'm writing you now just to see if you're better New York is cold, but I like where I'm living There's music on Clinton Street all through the evening I hear that you're building your little house deep in the desert you're living for nothing now i hope you're keeping some kind of record yes and jane came by with a lock of your hair she said that you gave it to her That night that you planned to go clear Did you ever go clear? Oh, the last time we saw you You looked so much older your famous blue raincoat was torn at the shoulder You'd been to the station to meet every train Then you came home without Lily Marlene Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. And I'm T. Hetzel. And today, Keith Taylor... Um, and that was a great li living writer we were just listening to, Leonard Cohen. That's Canadian poet. Canadian poet before he was a songwriter um, and still doing it, 74 years old, still touring. I'm going to hear him for the first time live on May 9th in Detroit. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, that'll be great. It will. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll try to shoot his publicist an email and see if he can swing by <laughs> here. <laughs> I think it'd be great to have Leonard Cohen in the CBN offices. Absolutely. And he's 74. He's 74. That's, that's kind of, he's in great shape. Hard to believe, isn't it? Apparently, he even gets down on his knees and sings when he's. But some of the songs require it. It seems like that's true. Doesn't it? That's, and then, that's and, true. and yeah. speaking of like the, um, the living legends, in a way, um, Ernesto Cardinal then is coming Ernesto next week. Cardinal is going to be here next Wednesday, in the fifteenth, and I'm going to read the English translations. They asked me to read the translations of his poems. I was very flattered, and I'm looking forward to meeting him and looking forward to hearing him read those poems in Spanish. Yeah, yeah. and and that's here at the at the university, isn't that's it? Gonna, at the that's going to be at the Hatcher Library, Hatcher Library next Wednesday night. At seven. I it's think. seven. Yeah. Okay, and that that'll be an important event because Cardinal, he's he's eighty four. He's he's an old man. He was a central figure from the Sandinista government, and then he has been no. He, 
no stranger to controversy. He has you know, been a little reluctant to support some of the more recent Sandinista things. So it's interesting. I don't know how much about all that he's going to talk about. But it's right. Well, well okay, maybe, it's, maybe it's about the poems Maybe it's about the poems. And Absolutely. Then, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, and so it'll be yeah. great to hear your voice. Yeah, again. I, I'm, I'm um, very pleased. So, so, Keith, let's hear one of your poems, okay. if, you, if you don't mind. This is, here's one that fits. This is from the new book. It's a, it's a poem called A Walk. It's in four sections, and I was just remembering different walks in my life um, that stick in my mind. The first one being um, when I, I remember when I first took my first steps. So nobody believes that, but that's what the first section is about. The second one um, is about the thing you mentioned before, the, the watch night service and New Year's Eve. The third section is uh, a walk through Paris, although I translate all the the places in Paris, and it makes them sound very weird. Place of the Star, Champs-Élysées, or place, place of the Star, Fields of Heaven. If I'd left them in their French names, everybody would know I was talking about Paris, but as it is, <laughs> it gets weird. Uh, and then the last one is Weird here. is good, though. Uh, weird is good, yeah. And the last one is uh, takes place in, in northern Michigan. So a walk, and each section begins with a dot, dot, dot. Um, implying that the, the, the two words a walk would be there. So, a walk, one. From that place in a hall in an old farmhouse at the foot of a narrow stairway that rose up to darkness at the top, no one believes I can remember my first steps. You heard it from your family, they say. But I remember I was alone and no one saw the things I saw. I know a man who remembers his own birth, I say, who remembers pain when he was pushed into his life. And I pulled myself upright by that stairway, turned and walked, uncertainly, of course, back to the living room and the light. Two. On New Year's Eve, after I snuck out of church, the watch night service, where my family watched minutes crawl, sang hymns, and prayed until midnight, and outside in air so cold it hurt to breathe, air that rose up dense and smoky around me, when I walked fast, faster over the snow crunching back at me, until I was running, exhilarated, until the twelve bells chimed and the drunk and godless yelled through their windows to the boy running by, Happy New year kid and all i wanted was to join the party three alone from the east station to the river then west through courtyards and the palace gardens and somewhere here among the fountains the sun finally broke through the trees over the shops and hotels onto the first old man reading his morning paper on a bench wet with dew to the fields of heaven, and all the way up to the place of the star. And I understood, or thought I did for a minute, maybe two, the notion that the sun might need one of us each morning, and this morning it might be me, to bring it back over the crest with the power of our joy. And I returned to the river to stand in line before the sparkling tower. 4. In the Manistee National Forest, on snowshoes, probably four feet on the ground already and more snow falling, and I lost direction out in the scrub oak and jack pine, then wandered for hours, hearing only raven croaks and the deceptively close nuthatch calls, nasal and metallic, until I stumbled upon a snowed-under, fire-access, two-track road I vaguely remembered and found my way back to my friends, their cabin, their Wood stove and fire. Thank you, Keith. Plainly. 
Yeah, starting, you've got the birth there and, and the light in the hall, and then you're ending with the fire as well. That's, that's lovely. Yeah, yeah, you try to work those things out. Uh, but yeah. sometimes, sometimes they present themselves and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and of course, bringing it back to Manistee, like our yeah. this place. Why, why did you decide to stay here, Keith? Like, um, what, did well, you love that corner of the field row? Like, you did the work, <laughs> and you loved it. Um, I, came, I came to Michigan, um, T. I mean, I'd like to say that there was a good reason that I came. But, but I, I had uh, I'd been living in France, and I was going to live my life in France. Um, but uh, I broke up with the woman I was there uh, I was with there um, and had to find something else to do. And I'd never heard that there was such a thing as writing programs. And there were a lot fewer of them in the mid-70s than there are now. Um, and I, I never knew what they were. And I applied to a bunch. And my sole criterion was to go to the one that gave me the most money. And the one that gave me the most money was at Central Michigan University, up 70 miles north of Lansing. Met some wonderful people there um, and people who, um, including the, the people I described there who at that time were living, you know, hippies living in the woods in, in, in the Manistee National Forest. And they lived in this tiny little cabin. They lived there for seven years. Um, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, fell in love with another woman who was a student at Central and then she transferred uh, down here to the University of Michigan. So I, I followed her here in 1979. Um, so I, I came to Ann Arbor following a woman. Um, and, uh, you know, found ways to, to, to stay until now. And, and is this woman Christine? It is. A woman <laughs> later married me and had my child. So, yeah, uh, consented to bear my child. Um, so for, for which I'm deeply, deeply grateful. And and um, and the book, uh, If the World Becomes So Bright, is dedicated to, to your daughter. Dedicated to my daughter, Faith. Yep. Um, it's... Uh, um, it was her turn to have a book, I think, but also um, it was a book, um, even though that there is a slight irony, everybody thinks, oh, Keith's Bright World, um, but but the, the title is actually slightly ironic, that the world becomes so bright we can't see the stars. Um, but it is nonetheless a book about um, trying to find a faith in the future, trying to find some hope in the future, um, and... Um, and the meaning that might come out of some of these encounters we have with the world we live in and, and how that meaning might carry on into the future. And so, you know, when you have a child, that's a that's a commitment to the future. So um, my wife came up with the, the idea of naming our daughter Faith um, when she did, and she asked what I thought, and I said, well, you know, i got a bunch of Mennonite relatives who are going to love it. Um, and uh, and, they, and they do, and they love her. Um, but, but, you know, so it, it's, all of that ties together, and, and, you know, there is some sort of, simply by, by getting to, to, by choosing to have a child, um, we are choosing the future. And uh, whether we, whether we're completely convinced of that or not. So that's what this book is about, and, and that's why it's dedicated to her. Choosing the future. Do you think, um, and so often calling upon um, nature within it, and and um, it seems when people, when people are 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 lauding your work and mm-hmm. saying what has has moved them or uh, affected them, Keith, often they're they're talking about your close attention, um, your 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 close observation, uh, whether it's the warblers returning in mm-hmm. early May. So mm-hmm. we've got that to look forward to, too, right? right. Is that true? Soon. Is that some, true? Uh, some people, are, a few people have started seeing some already. So, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then it's almost as if you, it's a practice of yours. So it's your way of 
maybe keeping faith with the future. When you were staying at Tom Lynch's cottage, for example, you wrote a poem in his his, his book. book there. Yes, I did. And part of it was logging the the different birds. Right, because yeah. Tom had always wanted to know what birds were. Um, our friend, our friend Tom Lynch has this wonderful ancestral cabin that he's inherited in West Clare, and he lets some of his writer friends go there. The only thing he asks of us is that we write something in a book. And of course, if you're a writer, um, you want to write something in that book because there are people in that book you want to be associated with. Seamus Heaney, um, you know, and other people almost as famous. So I worked hard on that poem. I wrote that poem, um, you know, the time I was in Ireland. I think I was there at Tom's place a couple of weeks. And uh, and then I wrote it, and I copied out a clean copy in that book, and I said, okay, this is where this poem belongs. This poem belongs in this book. Nowhere else. So I ripped up all my notes. I didn't keep a copy. I burned all my notes in Ireland. The next writer who came over was, was a novelist named Brett Lott, a wonderful novelist named Brett Lott. Um, and Brett... Uh, at the time was editing the Southern Review, which is an old prestigious review. It's been around for almost a century. The kind of place we all want to publish. I don't think I'd ever even sent poems there, just assuming they're not going to want to publish poems by somebody like me. And uh, he he called old man Taylor, old man Taylor, and he and he uh, he talked to Tom afterwards and said, oh, "I like that poem by this guy, you know, Keith Taylor." And you know, I wonder if he's published that poem. And Tom asked me, and I said, "Published it? It's just there and handwritten in that book in your little cottage in West Clare." So I had Tom's neighbor. Um, young girl, she was still in high school then, I think, um, go over and copy it out and email me my own poem, which I then revised and sent to this guy at the Southern Review, and he published it. So it was a very strange way for a poem to find its way into print. You want me to read it? And now, well, well, you know what? Let's we'll take <laughs> okay, a short break, take a and break. then can we hear it? Sure, because that would be that absolutely. would be. I'd love that because it is. It's in the latest book. It is in the latest so, book. So, so people can get their their okay. hands on it if the world becomes so bright. Um, Keith's latest. Um, so we'll take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back. Ocean for a heart of gold I've been 
Hello, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the writer's chair. <laughs> I sound like I'm trying to copy like those TV shows, right? right. The actor's <laughs> studio or something. Uh, you watch Taylor. TV, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to. I don't oh, know. Okay. My TV doesn't get anything anymore, oh. really. <laughs> That's why we have radio. That's right. Radio. Viva la radio. Hmm. Um, well, a quick thanks to Alex Bellhudge for engineering, um, as, as always, um, a star. And um, so, Keith, could we hear that poem right before we took that break? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Absolutely. So Thank this is a poem about Ireland. Uh, it takes place in Ireland, the west coast of Ireland, um, West Clare. It's for Thomas Lynch, who has inherited his ancestral place. And Lynch is, of course, the famous undertaker poet from Milford, Michigan. Uh, look him up if you don't know him. It's good stuff. Uh, very much associated with family um, and particular places. And um, that's a, an attitude or a, a thing that I have tried to create in my own life and that I envy. So this is called The Fit in West Clare for Thomas Lynch. I mispronounce the place names here. And when your neighbors greet us, sometimes I think it could be easier if they would simply speak Greek. When I got up in the night to piss, I didn't put on my glasses in the faint hope that blurry vision might help me see a ghost. Instead, I stubbed my toe on the raised flagstone in front of the new bedroom. I know you know these hauntings never arrive when planned. I did do one job and kept a running tally of birds seen by the cottage, the road, the Shannon estuary on one side, on the other, the Atlantic. Thirty-six species so far. The ones we don't have back home get me excited, of course. Pied wagtail or meadow pippet, fulmar, stone chat. But there's a certain pleasure in the familiar, the wren, troglodytus troglodytus, that flew into the entryway, that porch designed to hold rubber boots soiled by work in the cowfields. Back home in Michigan, we call it winter wren because, though we may have fewer ghosts, we have more species of wren. My daughter caught it in her hands and let it go in the green bushes by the turf shed. She took great pleasure naming the small bird that collided with the north window, blue tit. Like our chickadee, I said. And she said, just try to get that one in a poem, and laughed all through dinner. The locals assume we have ancestral connections here, and my Polish Catholic wife claims I do. But I'm a bit more worried about centuries of hate and feel the need to point out Scots-Irish than think they think a Protestant. So we fit imperfectly here in your wet parishes, although when I went to wash the jeans I'd worn all week, I realized they were yours, just one size too large. I thought that maybe I lost an inch on my long working vacation in Greece and France, but no such luck. When we went on the dolphin watch out of Kerrigaholt, the woman selling tickets asked, when she found out we were staying up at the Lynch place in Movine, if I might not be a brother or a cousin. She thought, just maybe, I looked like family. Thank you, Keith. Certainly, T. So many of these poems in in your latest book are are dedications. Like that that one was to Tom Lynch, right? Right. And then and you've got a, a great one to Ann Carson as well. I did. Uh, yes, yes. Ann Carson. I took her to a, I took her out to see a great horned owl out by a Wendy's. And... I thought you were 
say <laughs> took her took her to Wendy's. And like, it's what no, somebody right. said because you know Anne's so sort of such so wonderfully high culture. And somebody looked at his poem and said, "You took Anne Carson to Wendy's," and I went, "Yeah, I'm proud of it too." So high culture and fast food. That's uh, let's, let's bridge those things. And, but there's more, and these are these are um, right, writer friends some, of yours. But some writer friends and but, yeah, and, yeah, um, and family and and you know people are are. That was one of the things in my mind in this in doing this book was the stew of of the people who were all involved with it um that 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 even though the act of writing usually takes place alone um in a room um the larger community of of any writer's life um of our most writers' lives uh, certainly affects the work that's being done and 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 it's something we play off against. There's an Auden quote which I always get wrong. I have to look it up to get it right. But it is something to the effect that um, Auden, Auden said, "Art begins if it does not end there, with the effort to entertain our friends." Um, and I think that there's there's some truth in that. Art begins. It certainly does not end there. It certainly does not end there. But it begins. It often begins with the effort to entertain our friends. And so, with these particular poems, Keith, were they ones where uh, you were? Um, did you enter into the conversation um, when you started on the page or was it something you were forming and then you it became that where you knew it was for someone in particular um, it could go either way um, there were there were times when the, the 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 stuff was going on or the conversations were going on around the poems um, and the poems sort of came out or just sort of were a snapshot of part of that but there are other ones when the, when when it became poem clear that the poems would be dedicated to that person after and sometimes long after the poem was written so that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I guess everything <laughs> break all the rules, right? Well, you know, There's what, no rules rule for dedication. Give. Absolutely, <laughs> whatever rule you'll give yourself is, uh, is is meant to be broken. Well, so you you wear many hats around these parts, and um, one of them is the director of the Bear River Writers Conference, which yep. which is going to happen May 28th through June 1st this year. Right. Um, can you it's tell us it's about sponsored it? by the University of Michigan now. It didn't start. The University uh, assumed a sponsorship in its third year. Um, the Bear River Conference is a is a writers conference that takes place at Camp Michigania on Walloon Lake outside Petoskey uh, every year. This is our ninth year, uh, where we bring in uh, writers from around the country, and then and then you know have a core basis of writers who who uh, who, who live here, uh, and then about another half that we bring in from from the west coast or the east coast. And uh, we do workshops and we do readings and we have talks and, uh, you know, try to get the stew going. And we've been we, – we, 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 when we first set this up, we had some help from Robert Hass, who was the poet lawyer of the United States, who said, don't just make it like everyone else. So we try to, we try to push that at this conference people will generate new work. Um, some people don't like that because they, they want to be – they want to have work that they've already done looked at by these famous people. But that's nonetheless been our idea, and it's been, it worked really well. We've had the books come out, books of poems. Um, so a couple nonfiction books came out, a wonderful book. Oh, uh, you mean since? Like people since who then, came, people who started, students who came yes, or to people, the conference, oh, yeah, or people, right, writers people, who came yeah, to the often, conference. Most of the people are not um, students, are not academics. There are people interested in writing in a larger community, although we're more than we're more than willing to have academics over. Um attend but but uh, books got started there and the books are coming out now it always takes a while for books to get written and then to get published uh, I had some great books this year that came out that people actually wrote the first drafts of the first words uh, 
here. What book by Mary Ellen Geis uh, called uh, some of hearts in the title, but it's a memoir of her father's Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease. A uh, book by Marty Link uh, about uh, a murder that took place over in the Lake Michigan coast back in the 60s. A book of poems by uh, Pia Tavala, who teaches poetry to the deaf at Gallaudet University. So um, really, really sort of wonderful books that have stewed and, and, and generated out of out of our writers conference. So Stew, stewed as being stewed, stewing, very important <laughs> to you, Keith exactly. Taylor. <laughs> is exactly. that something like marinating as well? Mar- marinating, or is it more, yeah, mar- marinating more over, innocent than marinating yeah, perhaps. No 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 booze in it, of course. <laughs> right. And uh and and marinating over a very slow flame. Uh, perhaps a wood stove. <laughs> so, so again, like the community is is really is really important. You're you're such a. Can you ever see um, leaving this area? Because this seems to be such a like in this. You are in this community. You're um, yeah, harking I, from the west. I, and I, but I, my, my wife is my wife is from Detroit, and uh, I say that she can't she can't imagine. Um, living more than 100 miles from a car factory. Life would be frivolous if it were more than 100 miles from a car factory, even, yeah, if, it's, a... even if it's one that's closed. Uh, but uh, so so I think we're, it, it looks right now, it's very hard to imagine moving away um, right now. But who knows? Yeah, because what, what would you do without these these birds and the, the, the corner know, of the cornfields? Absolutely, the... absolutely. Of course, I, I imagine there are vineyards in the south of France somewhere. But... <gasps> Well, there's nothing stopping you to have, you know, that that second home. Or, or didn't, there's yeah, a poem just, you have, like, we're Sunday people, right? I love right, that phrase because right, right. it must be, like, the people who blow in on That's the weekends right, exactly. to the, the lakes. And we're, not, the... We're, not, we're, not, we're not rich enough to have the second home. We just <laughs> blow in and we rent our little rooms far away from the scenic sites. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's some that that gives um, maybe that also gives you a different sort of awareness, doesn't it? Like not having um, things yeah, always I, just know, come so easily to you. Yeah, and, yeah. Although they come very easily now, I'm not complaining. My life is very good now. Um, it was. It, for, that's what I was going to yeah, say. For, for a long for a long time, it wasn't. But uh, but life is you know, life is taking care of itself. Oh, I'm glad. On the on the cusp of old age. Oh. <laughs> Old man I hope my Taylor. wife's not listening to that because she wouldn't like that. Old man um, Taylor. Right. Um, and so, so when you're when you're out and 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 you're you're writing like with your method, are you are you are you searching for epiphany, Keith Taylor, or what um, what are you doing out there with your snowshoes, your your red <laughs> canoe? You know, your what are you? Even though the color of my canoe tee, very good. Um, am I searching for epiphany? No, I'm just searching. I mean, I'm just looking for what's there in the world. Um, and, and I mean, the world's full of epiphanies. The world's a wonderful place. Um, and uh, once we can get out of our own heads um, and often get away from our own species for at least a little while, um, the world's, the world's filled, with, filled with wonderful things that, that uh, can teach us things uh, when we look at them, when we try to understand them. And where can people, speaking of not getting away from the species for a while, but coming together at readings, there we <laughs> where, go. There where we can go. people see you in the coming weeks? Okay, let's see if I can remember them all. I don't have them written down. But uh, Friday the 10th, I am at McLean & Eakin Bookshop in Petoskey. Uh, Wednesday the 15th at the Graduate Library, I'll, I'll be reading the English versions for the poems of Ernesto Cardinal, and the man himself will be reading the poems in Spanish. Saturday the 18th, I will be in the afternoon at 1 o'clock. I will be at the River Gallery in Chelsea 
And that evening at 7 o'clock, I'll be reading a couple of poems with a new piece that was commissioned, um, and its premiere will be with uh, by composer Evan, Evan Chambers, and it will be performed by the Ann Arbor Symphony Orchestra at the Michigan Theater, and I'll be reading a couple poems on stage there. Um, and then, of course, there are other things, and the Bear River Writers Conference, uh, uh, May 28th, but there are even things before that. So the launch of these books, these series. Oh, and you, series. Have, a, you, have, you have a website, too. I Keith, do have a so website. I do have a website, Keith yes. Keith Taylor, yes. Ann Arbor? Yes, www.keithtaylorannarbor.com. And we had to make it all that because there are an awful lot of Keith Taylors in the world. Well, it's a good, solid name. Yeah. That photographer claimed the first. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> like right. Just the... He got, he got KeithTaylor.com. He, got that's, he is out in Seattle somewhere. And <laughs> I have no idea who he is. Well, KeithTaylorAnnArbor.com. And th- thanks thanks for being on the program, Keith. My pleasure, and, T. It's good to see you. And, oh, well, it's good to see you. And and um, you've been listening to Keith Taylor talk and read <laughs> um, from his latest book. I wish we could have gotten to some of Keith's other books. But we've got to hear poems from If the World Becomes So Bright. Um, we've got sports up next Uh, thanks for streaming wherever you are Florida, Seattle, Chicago maybe even Ireland out there (laughs) thanks again to Alex Belhodge I'm T. Hetzel until next time to be free like the worm on a hook like a night from some old fashioned I have saved all my ribbons for thee. If I, if I have been This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, August 23rd, 2011. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, as the U.S. gets ready for the first hurricane of the season, hundreds of thousands of Haitians face risks in poor housing. Privacy advocates raise concerns about ISPs storing consumers' online information. And we'll go to India, where widows face the hardships of meager government help and strong tradition. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Neil Abram with FSRN Headlines. Plans to evacuate hundreds of migrant workers trapped in Libya's capital were delayed today. Heavy fighting prevented a boat chartered by the International Organization for Migration, or IOM, from docking at the Tripoli port. They'd hoped to evacuate at least 300 migrant workers stranded in the city by the violence. Jean-Philippe Chauzy from IOM says the boat will remain off the Tripoli coast until security conditions improve and the safety of staff and migrants can be guaranteed. Once clearance is given for the ship to dock in the harbor, then we can, with counterparts in the embassies, take the 